in reality, there are several different nations of people in the United States from West Coast to East Coast to Midwest to South to Southwest. And every single one of those is distinct. Every single one of those is going to be impacted by immigration differently. But we should understand that these different nationalities already exist within the United States and we already make them work. And that's the that's the beauty of American government is that we can make all these different nationalities come together under one state and prove that you don't have to have a nation state. You don't have to be French to be France. You can be different cultures in the same place. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 20. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this podcast is to make American foreign policy interesting and easy to understand for people who don't follow it closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. We are joined today in the virtual studio by Stephen Howard. Hello, how are you guys? Be sure to check out the official website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So today's episode is all about immigration. The United States has been deadlocked for years over the idea of building a great, big, beautiful wall on the southern border to keep out immigrants and drug traffickers. This past week, the president, seeing little appetite from Congress to approve his multi-billion dollar wall proposal, issued a national emergency declaration to seize funds from other purposes to build his wall. This move has been widely criticized as being, quote, a first-century solution to a 21st-century problem. But rather than try to slog through the domestic politics of this move, we thought we would devote this latest episode to a discussion of how other nations handle problems related to immigration. After all, many nations throughout the world, including the United States, Europe, the Middle East, and even Southeast Asia, are experiencing the problems of immigration. So what are the different possible solutions, and what are the benefits and risks of each of these? I guess that's obviously the one on everyone's mind right now is a border wall, and that's something where there there isn't too much benefit to it, to be completely honest. The majority of migrants come through legal ports of entry. The majority of migrant or the majority of drugs comes through legal ports of entry. Uh, the things that don't come through legal ports of entry come through and tunnels under the air and under the border. I mean, there are some coyotes who shuttle people back and forth through the the desert, but that is kind of few and far between there. I shouldn't say few and far between, but it's it's not a the significant amount of people coming through the border. Put on top of all that, we are at record low numbers of people crossing the border irregularly. Not only are we at record low numbers, but the, there are more people going back than there are people coming here. So there's actually a net exodus from the United States. In terms of the border that's on everyone's mind, I it's it's just not going to help at all. And I know that for a personal experience, I'm actually from El Paso, Texas, if anyone cares. But the rally that happened there just a couple nights ago saying, oh, how dangerous El Paso was before it got a wall. I, I, I lived there for a very long time, like 18, 19 years. And it was never dangerous there. It was 
never kind of people up here in South Dakota where I live right now were like, oh, why would you go walking out at street at night? Why is it so? But I, I was brought up in a city where you could do that and not really have to be afraid for yourself. And I mean, not a great idea, but also it's not something where you really have to fear for your life. And that's I. So it, the border wall doesn't really have any positive effect other than being a brute show of force. One thing it does have an effect on, though, is wildlife. Wildlife, which actually crosses the border because it's wildlife, would be basically segregated from each other. So the classic, I guess, scientific experiment for that would be the Grand Canyon, where they have two different types of squirrels on either side of the Grand Canyon because they can't get across the Grand Canyon because, hey, it's a Grand Canyon. You'd be creating the same sort of division with... Uh, Maybe not squirrels because they could climb it, or birds they could fly across it. But with bigger animals that can't get over that wall, they would have just two two similar ecosystems on either side, but cut off from itself. And that's a that's a pretty big ecological problem. Yeah, and I think kind of that speaks to um, what you were saying a little bit earlier with regards to you know because I grew up in South Dakota, and so I kind of understand where people are coming from in the sense of. You know, they don't understand these areas. They didn't grow up in El Paso, Texas. So a lot of the reason why you see people from states far away from the border states are so um, excited about immigration is because they simply just don't understand what it's actually like there. They've never been to the border. They've never been in a border town. And so they think, well, it must be dangerous because it's a border town. You know, I've seen movies where, you know, Sicario, it's, it's just a terrible border town and people are getting murdered left and right. So that must be the case. And of course, it's simply not. I mean, in those uh, communities, you know, I grew up in a small town community and and there just weren't a lot of um, there weren't a lot of immigrants as far as I could tell. And so people just didn't really have an idea of um, of their struggles and what it was like to be there. Um, and I think I think it's good to start the immigration discussion uh, for today on barriers, since that is the most obvious and, um, you know, as kind of you were saying, the most symbolic brute force uh, sort of application of uh, immigration control. I do think that, um, I mean, they are effective in some areas, and I'm speaking specifically to, so like the United States obviously is uh, very interested in, in creating borders. Uh, some of the uh, Eastern European states along the edge of the European Union are looking at borders as a way to, or barriers as a way to, um, to stem the flow of immigrants coming from like the Middle East, so to speak. Uh, but these can be effective in some areas, of course, you know, a lot of high traffic areas, places in cities, things like that. Um, but of course, as you were saying, they're not practical in others. So, you know, in the middle of a giant desert, maybe it's not necessarily the best idea to throw up a gigantic wall because someone's probably not going to cross there anyway. Um, and one of the things I've seen is that these barriers can actually sort of push people to try to cross at other areas. So at either legal ports of entry or uh, even more dangerous areas. So a lot of times, you know, the walls will go right up to some of the most treacherous places in the border. So very large uh, rivers or vast deserts, giant gorges that are very difficult to cross. And so that can have the potentially somewhat might say intended or unintended consequence of making it very, very dangerous for people to try to cross. And of course, a lot of times people die along the way just because the, bo the barrier was there in some places and not there in others. 
Um, and so that's that's kind of one of the drawbacks to having a barrier, besides from the fact that, of course, they're, they're very expensive and, as you alluded to, um, not necessarily the most effective means of stopping, say, like drugs and uh, people smuggling. Yeah, and it's... It depends on the pattern of migration as well, like what you were saying. The people who are getting across from, say, uh, Greece, or like, Greece obviously has some natural uh, barriers in terms of it's an a lot of islands, and uh, Hungary building barriers. A lot of those ones are going to work a little better for stemming migrants, whether they're ethical or not. And that's, I'm not determining any ethics question on those right now, but they will stop people from getting through because the patterns of migration, they are completely different. They are completely over the border. When you talk about the patterns of migration in Texas area or whatnot, it's still going over the border per se, but it's being ferried by actual human traffickers. And those human traffickers, while they're trying, they're trying to make as much money as they can. These are, and they will pack 30, 40 migrants in a truck and cross the border at a legal point of entry and just try to get away with uh, not actually getting checked with 30, 40 people locked in a freezer truck in the back. And that's actually one of the biggest problems is that so many of these migrants die when they're trying to come across the border. If you make the trip across the desert, there's a very high probability that you will be either injured or you will die. Uh, if you try to use a smuggler, they're going to put you in a situation where they're set up to make the best amount of money possible because you have to pay them up front and you're probably going to die. It's Yeah, and, and the same can be said for kind of, as you said, Greece. It obviously has that natural barrier with the Mediterranean Sea, but you know, people smugglers, human traffickers can still use that to their advantage. I mean, you've seen, you've seen the boats that are just packed and packed with migrants and of course they capsize. Um, yeah. But the person in charge of that people is... people a boat, per, um, yeah. usually? Well, and they're nowhere... The, per, the person in charge of that is nowhere to be found. They're not They're not on that boat, necessarily. They're, they're charging other people to do it. So if it sinks, honestly, sometimes it isn't so bad for them simply because now no one can trace back to them that they were doing this in the first place. So um, that's one of the, the key issues with, with just throwing up barriers or just allowing barriers to be... Uh, your main source of immigration control is that there's a drastic human cost to this in terms of lives. Yep. Yeah, it's com it's completely true and that but they're effective just, in some ways. I I mean, yes, they're they're kind of effective, but it's like trying to dam up a rushing river, right? They're just going to find a way around the dam. You put up a barrier somewhere and the flow of migrants is going to move towards where the barrier is not. So if you put up a barrier across the entire southern border, if for, for whatever reason, you're able to actually do that. Okay, so they're going to come across in boats like they do from, uh, from I was going to say from Hawaii, not from Hawaii, uh, from Cuba. Well, and if, if everything is a barrier, then nothing's a barrier, right? You don't know exactly where to pinpoint uh, where someone is going to try to cross. Because if you have barriers in certain sections and not in certain sections... They're going to try to cross in the area where you don't have a barrier. But if you have a barrier everywhere, you have no idea where they're going to try to cross because the entire section, you know, they might as well just go anywhere at that point. All right, so I think we've discussed barriers pretty thoroughly. Um, 
The next sort of solution I wanted to propose is, is that of temporary asylum. Bringing people into the country, trying their case in a court, and sometimes they can kind of languish in the system for sometimes even years at a time. I guess it's sometimes characterized as like almost a catch and release sort of thing. I guess what are your thoughts then on temporary asylum? What do you think are the, the benefits and drawbacks of, of that, not just in the United States, but from uh, any country's perspective? The problem is that when you allow them into the country as just uh, under those rules where, hey, it's temporary asylum, you'll go back eventually. What if what if the conditions don't change? Or what if they like it here? What if they prefer it here? It's, it's exactly. not a good you can, solution. You can very easily lose track yeah. of the very people that you're trying to, to support or to try to help, at least through their situation. I mean, it's certainly cheaper in some regards than just building a giant concrete wall. <laughs> but of course, the people are in the country now, and there's not necessarily a great mechanism in most cases for keeping track of them. No, certainly. And I mean, it's one of those things where if the if the country doesn't change for a very long time that they fled from, um, I mean, Cuba is obviously one of those countries, they're going to stay in the United States or in whatever country it happens to be for generations. And at some point, although they have that kind of idea in the back of their head that, hey, I'll go back someday. They're basically U.S. citizens at that point because they've been, they were born, they are U.S. citizens. They were born in the United States and they are continuing to live in the United States. They've been brought up in the United States. And it's at what point do you have to go? Well, we're giving you everyone that's going to be a temporary refugee. If we don't fix their problem is we're just giving them citizenship. That's basically what we're doing. Well, at least in the in the case of a country that provides birthright citizenship. Yes. Of course, a lot of European countries don't necessarily do that. Yeah, so, right. Um, then you even have multiple generations that, you know, it almost creates sort of a second class of citizens who have fewer rights because, of course, they're not citizens. So they don't have access to all of the same, say, governmental services or uh, rights and privileges that a citizen would. And so now you have this almost second class of people who are living in the country, but we can't necessarily can't necessarily keep track of them or provide any other type of support for them. It's just they're there, but you know they're not necessarily legal, and so that causes a whole host of problems with trying to you know, either track them down or to try to change their status in some way. In some cases, I'm sure it can lead to radicalization as well. Say if you are a immigrant or who fret, who fled from. Iraq during the Iraq Civil War, and you're staying in Germany, and during that temporary asylum in Germany, where you're basically half, you're not really a citizen, but you're not really a migrant to there, and blah blah blah. It you can start sitting there thinking, well, the people of my country, the people of the country I live in right now, they don't care about me, they don't want me here. My home country is just being overrun. It's time to look for something different, something radical, a revolution. Yeah, I, th I think that that's an excellent example because we know that that's how most radicalization happens, especially in you know, countries like the United States or in European countries where the first generation that shows up usually isn't the one that's radicalized. It's the next generation, the generation that's grown up and lived in that country their entire lives, but the country views them as either a second-class citizen or someone who should be expelled completely from the country. And so, of course, they start to sort of idealize what they think their their parents life was like in the home country and of course it gets co-opted by 
you know, the obvious example here is radical Islam. And then that's what breeds this sort of radicalization that we can see permeate throughout societies. Yep. And that's so on a personal example for me, uh, I actually did know two brothers who came from Iraq and I'll keep their names private because it's not mine to give. But uh, one of the brother, one of the brothers was fairly old. He was about my age. The other brother was very young, both really good guys, but they uh, left Iraq after the Iraq war. Um, their parents were able to get over to the United States and there was a kind of a, a disconnect, a disassociation in terms of the younger brother. And the older brother was talking to me about it. He's like, yeah, no, Saddam was a horrible human being. I am incredibly happy to be out of Iraq. I am incredibly happy that he is overthrown. Um, at least now it can, you know, try to get better. And if you talk to the younger son who didn't, didn't really remember Iraq at all, he all he remembered was the good things about Iraq, like what you were saying. And all he re- wanted to do was, yeah, one day I'm going to go back and because it's such a beautiful place. It's so, so much more gorgeous than over here and blah, blah, blah. And huge disconnect between the people who remember that country and the people who are told about that country or remember really little about the country because it's just in our that's in human nature. I mean, if you look back in kindergarten for anyone listening to this podcast, you'll probably go, oh, that was a good time. Unless for some reason you had a horrible kindergarten, but you can kind of get my point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the entirety of the uh, the 2016 election, right? Is make yeah. America great again. The slogan is <laughs> looking back with this nostalgia of, you know, these were the better times. Yep. Forgetting that, you know, those times are the same as these times. They're all they all have their good and bad. Uh, it's not necessarily that one time was better than another. It's just that we remember it differently because, you know, we want to. Any other thoughts on temporary asylum then? In terms of actual uh, an actual asylum program, I don't think it's workable because it doesn't address the root causes of why the asylum is happening. And it's basically just giving citizenship, which that's a completely different question, just giving citizenship to people who show up. That's actually my next one. Uh-huh. As a bridge. So, so <laughs> the, uh, the next solution is just, as you said, permanent citizenship. So they show up at the country and they're just automatically granted citizenship. Right off the bat, I can think of a few issues, though, with that, is that that would create a lot of discontent among citizens who are there first. And so they view this sort of influx of people from a different country who are automatically given the same rights and privileges as everyone else. Uh, They kind of view that negatively. Sure. And one of the other things is that when migrants come over from, say, uh, the Syrian conflict or what's happening in Venezuela now, they come over in one big movement it's not uh well they're going to be little by little by little by little it's not usually the case which puts an undue strain on the host country's welfare system if they're a welfare state which most modern western states and even the united states to some extent is a welfare state and that's just kind of a problem when you're just integrating mass amounts of people coming over because they're just the system is not set up to be able to integrate that many people at once which so basically the long-run economic benefits of immigration are they're there they are a hundred percent there but we have to remember that in the short run this is going to cause a pretty significant impact to government finances because you have to these people that are coming over here especially the ones that are coming from war-torn countries which is where they're majoritively coming from aren't going to be coming over with a lot of money they aren't going to be coming over with a perfect uh, ability to speak the language if they have any ability to speak the language 
and not neither of those things are their fault, but it means it's going to take time for them to become either integrate into the society or uh, become a working citizen in the society. And how do you work with them during that time? Because if they don't have language skills, if they don't have housing, if they don't have ability to make basic goods, you can easily overwhelm an economic system. Again, it's not, uh, also not a great solution. I do like classical economics, and one of the things about classical economics is free trade and free movement of labor. It's not just free trade. It's also free movement of labor. It's not a great short-term solution uh, for all the reasons that you just mentioned. But kind of as you were alluding to, it is a decent long-term solution in the sense that a lot of the evidence points to that you know, these uh, the immigrants that are coming over, once they're sort of established, and you know, I don't want to use the word assimilated because that can have some very negative connotations and ideas, but once they're at least established, contributing fully to the society like the rest of the citizens, um, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that that's really beneficial, especially because a lot of the countries that practice the sort of permanent citizenship idea uh, have very low... Uh, birth rates in the first place and so they need more and more people to actually make up for that in the first place sure and then you also so the classic example of what immigration can do for a country in the long run is the united states we are literally a country of immigrants and you look especially during the uh, uh, pre-civil war time when the united states just jumped by like a hundred percent population like every five years it was absolutely nuts it's probably not that much but it was very big jumps in uh, population, and it was because of the immigrate Im, uh, the immigration coming over here. And while that caused definite uh, tensions at the time, you think about the how the Irish treated, how the Germans were treated. In the long run, we are such a better country for having those people come over because you're able to expand the population in the United States, expand the economic base of the United States. You're able to push in more cultures. I don't think there's a person in the United States today who would say German and Irish, that's not a culture of the United States. That's not something that we would ever, gosh, if, oh, I would never appreciate the Irish or blah, blah, blah. It does integrate very well into the United States. And that's something that we need to recognize for all immigrants is that after, after a time, it's basically normal even though it's not normal before and it's good for the country sure from an economic perspective but once you start getting into the political uh the political perspective and the problems of identity and culture yeah. within a society that's where as we've seen it can be really really difficult because a lot of people from the uh you know the traditional culture of the country don't necessarily look at that as a good thing since the people will come over and they do, in some respects, change the culture a little bit, either for, for good or bad, depending on your opinion, but they do change the culture. And so that's difficult for the people who are, who remain, who were here first. Well, I shouldn't say first. Yeah. I mean, especially in the United States, we, we know who is here first and uh, that culture doesn't necessarily um, figure prominently into uh, the American identity, unfortunately. But, um, you know, the, the ones who are there now before... Uh, the new arrivals show up. Obviously, I think we all have people that we know that are like that, that are really afraid of a different culture showing up and a different culture integrating in or what they're afraid of is a different culture not integrating in and just creating their own little, I guess, uh, identity within the United States. And to be honest, it's almost impossible to do that. Yeah, you can change the culture a little bit, but you can't 
you can't just completely avoid the culture. I mean, you it's just impossible to do. Eventually, over time, even if it's with not in, within your lifetime, there will be integration that takes place. And if you want to say you believe in the uh, Darwinistic tendencies of blah, 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 well, then the best best facets of both cultures will be integrated into each other and you will have a overall better culture. I, I will say the United States has is very unique, especially from the cases of the Europeans. Because the Europeans, to be to live in France, you have to be French. And being French in itself is a culture. In the, Germany, you have to be German. In Britain, you have to be British. In the United States, there's no US-ish. It's and you're not really American per se. You are a Midwesterner. You're a East Coaster. You're uh, whatever you want to be. But there are multiple different nationalities within the United States that we don't really take stock of because they're just really normal to us. But in in reality, there are several different nations of people in the United States from West Coast to East Coast to Midwest to South to Southwest and Every single one of those is distinct. Every single one of those is going to be impacted by immigration differently. But we should understand that these different nationalities already exist within the United States, and we already make them work. And that's the that's the beauty of American government, is that we can make all these different nationalities come together under one state and prove that you don't have to have a nation state. You don't have to be French to be France. You can be different cultures in the same place. Yeah, the only, the only thing that you have to do in order to sort of self-identify as an American to have that American uh, you know, sense of shared identity is simply to believe in the American experiment, if you want to say that, to to just uphold the, the traditions of rule of law and democracy and the Constitution. That's yeah. essentially all you need to do in order to truly identify as an American. That's, of course, different from having American citizenship, but um, to have the American identity, that's essentially all you really need to do. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's there are I, there are little other things that I mean make you maybe a little more American or whatnot. But in general, that's really all you need is you need to you need to believe in the Constitution. You need to believe in the United States as a country in and of itself, and you need to believe that uh, it, kind of in the American dream, if you want to say. I know that everyone says the American dream is dead, but that you can make a better world for yourself. And that's what this United States was founded on is we can make a better world. We have sovereignty over our lives and we can make it better. And that is really what the American dream is. If you believe that, if you believe in democracy, if you believe in the constitution, in my book, you're pretty much a U.S. citizen. Individual self-determination. Exactly. All right. So let's take a very hard turn from permanent citizenship and uh, discuss the essentially the exact opposite proposal, which is straight deportation of everyone who comes into the country who is not a citizen. And uh, obvious examples here would be most authoritarian countries. Um, I, I guess you could say North Korea would be one very extreme example, uh, but they do more than just deportation there. They yeah. do a lot of other horrible things. I mean, you could argue that it's an effective solution to immigration, but there's definitely some drawbacks uh, can certainly come across as as a, sort of a cruel type of uh, solution if, you know, say these are like humanitarian refugees that are fleeing a crisis and you pick them up and throw them back into the crisis, that can certainly uh, cause some issues for you as well. Sure. And I, I'm not actually sure it is so um, feasible, honestly, 
because the as we've seen in the United States, as we've seen in all a uh, couple other countries as well, when these immigrants come over the border and they are, unless you were a totalitarian, absolutely ni- uh, 19, what is it, 1984? Uh, I can't remember the, the book's name, state like North Korea, you're not going to have total authority over everything in your country. And there's going to be a lot of people that get through the cracks. Um, they're going to be living in a situation where they uh, basically Hannah Art goes into this and she says that basically a lot of these people are outside of the law because they are illegal citizens the law does not apply to them well if the law doesn't apply to you you don't have the rights of protection from the law and becomes a big humanitarian disaster I'd encourage people to read more on Hannah Art but it it takes a lot of resources to find these people to deport them and then to deport them in a non-humane way, just throw them over the border doesn't work because the people that you're throwing them over the border to don't want them. You saw this classical case in Germany. Germany didn't want uh, during the 1940s, German in 1930s, sorry. Germany didn't want the Jews in their country because they decided to blame them for everything that went wrong in Germany completely irrationally, but It's what they decided to do. And so the Germans tried to get rid of the Jews at first by deporting all of them or by telling them, leave the country now. Well, that the Jewish people tried to do that. They tried to sail ships to the United States and famously the United States turned away a majority of those ships. They tried to go to different countries like France and Poland, but you know what? France and Poland weren't that much better than Germany was at that time. They were very anti-Semitic. You couldn't go anywhere. And that's what the that's what the case is with these uh, immigrants if you're trying to deport them as well. Nobody wants to take them back. They're not part of your country. Nobody wants them. So what are you going to – how are you going to get rid of them? Throw them across the border? So the other people's border patrol sitting there going, no, 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 no. You don't throw them across. You keep them on your side. You have a game of Red Rover going on? Yeah, essentially they, they're people without a state at a certain point, And so they just get tossed around from one place to another until – eventually they either join up and and start to fight for themselves and you know that can of course breed radicalization and that sort of thing or they just end up dying somewhere alone you know in the middle of nowhere because they had nowhere to go and uh that's not necessarily fair to say people who are fleeing like a humanitarian crisis um of course you know there are instances where deportation is necessary and has to happen you know in the case of like hardened criminals who come across the border and they're here you don't necessarily want them to uh to get all of the i don't want to say benefits of but you know the benefits of the uh, that nation's judicial system incarceration system that sort of thing um because in some cases incarceration could even be better than the conditions in some of those places and so you know the, the worst of the worst hardened criminals could just look at that and go, well, that's actually better than what I was going to look at before if you sent me back to the old country. So uh, that's not necessarily a deterrent for them. I mean, there are there are cases, limited cases, where uh, you know deportation can work and it's not it, it quite as a, as a terrible thing as we've discussed. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the whole, it's it's not necessarily the best solution for you know, people, just average people who are fleeing humanitarian, economic crisis, that sort of thing people who are just looking for a better life. Because as you say, they're going to get thrown into one country and then that country is going to say, well, we don't want you either. So they're going to get tossed to another country and you end up having 
a large number of essentially stateless people. I mean, even even now, and we'll get to this one in a second, but you know, e- even now we have the greatest refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War right now. And that's not necessarily something that can just be deported away. That's essentially just saying, well, you're not my problem, you're someone else's problem. Well, really, it becomes everyone's problem at a certain point. Yeah, and even if you want to go on the tact of it's not my problem, it's someone else's problem, and honestly believe that, which, I mean, it's hard to believe, but you can honestly believe that, it's still, in the end, going to bite you, because those people are still, if your country is the easiest one to get to, or the one they want to get to, they will get there. And if you are making them, not an outlaw class, but a complete, a under-the-law class, like Nick said, at some point, if you're a stateless person, you take sovereignty on yourself and go, all right, I'm a stateless person. I fight for myself. That's not, that's very bad for everyone. And the migrant, it's bad for the country. It's bad for everyone involved. I will say real quick that even soft deportation, if you want to call it that, so deportation with a smile on your face, where you're trying to do the best actually for the people you're deporting is incredibly difficult as we see in the southern border right now. Because all these, you had a whole bunch of children come over and you're going to deport them. Where are you going to deport them to? What are you, are, are you going to try to find every single one of their families in their home country? I, I don't think you have the resources to do that. And are you, so you can't just dump the children there. So what, you have to put them in, in camps? That's, I, well, that's what's happening on the southern border is you have to, you separate these families and it's, it's incredibly messy and it's incredibly, it doesn't work well. Yeah, and so that actually leads into the the last solution that I have uh, proposed for immigration concerns is that of just creating refugee camps. So they're essentially within the nation, but they're segregated into these individual enclosures, that sort of thing. Um, One of the biggest and most obvious examples is in places like Jordan or Lebanon, which are housing a tremendous number of Syrian refugees specifically. Um, The obvious problems with this uh, is that it can breed radicalization. And we've seen that in many of the camps throughout the Middle East and, and even you know, some of the other camps throughout the world. It's not necessarily a good permanent solution because uh, you certainly don't want to have people you know, growing up, living their entire lives in a refugee camp. And it creates that radicalization that can then spill out outside of the camp once it's either disbanded or even before it's disbanded. Yeah, and I'm thinking of, you also have camps in Sudan, or uh, they're not in Sudan, but they uh, take the people that have come from Sudan and other countries around in, uh, I guess, Central Africa. Those are some of the biggest camps on earth right now because they take so many people in, and the conditions in those camps are, okay, so the humanitarian workers try to make it as nice as possible, but there's only so much you can do for that. And so... The conditions in the camps are generally very bad. And to be 100% honest, of every single thing that we've talked about, this might be, well, I don't know, hard deportation is pretty bad. But um, the this might be the, one of the worst, because when you, you said uh, Lebanon and um, those camps, you put a whole bunch of people together in a camp separate from the rest of the country, say, hey, don't interact with the rest of the country. So they don't integrate into society. They just sit there. Then you have the problem of the uh, temporary asylum, where what happens if nothing changes in the country they came from? That's what that's what happens for most camps. Nothing changes in the country they came from. 
so they have to go somewhere. They go to the camp. They they go with all these other people from their same area in the camp. It just contains their little identity. It becomes basically a a miniature Palestine, a miniature Sudan, something to that extent, and just sits there forever and ever, and nothing changes. There are how Nick how how many generations of Palestinians have lived in the camps now? Is it like two or three? I mean, as many since, you know, at least you know, the end of the 1940s for some. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's real bad. And there's no and, and there's no fix in sight that has been going on for almost 100 years. And there is no fix in sight. These camps are not a solution. Creating a detention camp to work with refugees is not a solution. It can be used as a. If you are going to give them temporary asylum in your country or you're going to make them citizens, it can be a place for processing. That is about it. And that's only on the condition that you are letting these people... They go into the camp for, I don't know how long, a couple months, maybe to max a year. You work out how they're going to work, uh, get through your system, through uh, how what they're going to do for social welfare, blah, blah, blah. And then they're released into the system. But they can't just stay in the camps. Yeah, I mean, there's how many, you know, dozens, hundreds of refugee organizations, um, and you know, try as they will, it's it's still very difficult to to solve these problems. And the best you can do is sort of alleviate the suffering. I mean, um, I'm going to give a quick shout out to American Refugee Committee in uh, Minneapolis, just because I think that's a great organization, and everyone should support it. By the way. Um, you know, but even with all of the resources that these agencies and organizations have, and at best you can just make it, keep it from getting a little bit worse than it already is. Um, but it's it's really difficult, kind of as you said, to to manage what's happening within refugee camps and to to disband them. It becomes extremely difficult for all the reasons that we've said with deportation, citizenship, asylum. Um, I suppose the only benefit is. Maybe you can sort of keep tabs on people a little bit easier. But even then, when you get to some of the larger camps, that's, that's difficult to do. Yeah, it's a, unless they're in the middle of absolutely nowhere, which um, I believe the largest refugee camp on Earth is in Chad. I, I believe so. And that's mostly uh, Sudanese people that are live there. I, be, I, I could be wrong on this, but it's basically in the middle of nowhere. So it's easier to keep tracks on tabs on them because there's nowhere to go the host government still has to basically cordon off a whole bunch of area they still have to to some extent pay for it it doesn't benefit anyone in the long run or in the short run the mid run whatever run you want to be it doesn't benefit anyone well i'd say in the short run it it benefits the refugees for the simple fact that oh yeah i guess they would have nothing else otherwise but but yeah i mean mid midterm long term it's it's just not a great solution listeners want to kind of a theme of all these solutions is there is no good solution every single solution has a problem associated with it yeah and, and that's and yeah. that's really why i wanted to bring up the discussion is we're not trying to say this is the one shining magic bullet that will solve everything it's that all of these are really difficult all of them have advantages and disadvantages, and it's not a conversation that can be boiled down to you know, build a wall, don't build a wall.
I, I don't want to put it all on the refugees because, I mean, to be 100% honest to everyone out there, if I lived in a country that was going to kill my wife or kill my child, I would leave. And you know what? I would illegally go to another country if it meant that my wife and child wouldn't die. Because, hey, I'm human. And you know what? I want a better life for my family. And it's so it's it's not entirely their fault. It's definitely not the host country's or the country who they're going to's fault. A lot of it is the stability of the country they're coming from, uh, say Venezuela or Syria or wherever wherever you want to say they're coming from. And the only way to fix a lot of these refugee problems is to try to fix the country, which you can't really fix a country's political system. It's very difficult to do. Nor would you necessarily want to fix the country's. Would a foreign country want to fix another country's uh, political system? Oh, I'm not so sure about that. The United States is, has a uh, big, big, big um, stake in having Mexico's government be stable, and that's why we've bailed out Mexico's government in the past. Oh, sure, in terms of stability, but yeah. I was thinking more along um, that this could be a great segue into an unrelated topic that you wanted to discuss quickly, uh, which is Venezuela. Oh, yeah. And what is an intervention versus what isn't an intervention? I mean, we have, of course, there is a history of United States intervention in uh, Latin and South American countries. It's not necessarily a proud history. Um, and so that's sort of coloring this entire debate of what does the United States do about Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela and the complete authoritarian rise to power that he's attempted to complete here? You know, the United States obviously doesn't necessarily want a fully authoritarian nation that close to that close to home. And in Venezuela, which is you know a very oil-rich country and has a very large population, which is of course contributing to the refugee issue that is happening throughout South America now in Latin America. But what does the United States do? Is is sanctions really an intervention? Is it a coup, as Nicolas Maduro is saying? Or is it um, something much short of that? Yeah, and I... So, I have made my opinions on sanctions very clear in the past that I think they are a, a uh, useful tool that degrades every single time you use them. And in this case, a lot of people, oh, well, the United States has been overthrowing governments in Central America and South America for such a long time. And so they must be doing this in Venezuela. And that's that's not at all what's happening. So for the for the listeners, a really, really short and unnuanced rundown of what happened to Venezuela is Hugo Chavez died and the price of oil fell. That's it. Hugo Chavez was a very personal and charismatic leader who ran the country in a socialist way in terms of when I say socialist, he was, uh, there were a lot of benefits that were handed out, which I'm not going to discuss whether that's good or bad. It doesn't, it's not relevant. Act, to the practical it's it's actual socialism and not uh, what many policies on the American political left have been characterized as. Yes, exactly. When Hugo Chavez died, uh, he was left, his vice president took up the mantle of power and his vice president is singularly uncharismatic and singularly not a leader. But he was able to hold the old regime up. So the old regime kind of put him into place, into power. And then the price of oil tanked. Well, 
if you don't and oil is the primary uh i guess income for venezuela and when you don't have your primary income but you're still trying to distribute benefits to every single person in your country you're going to run into economic problems and that's what happened in venezuela they ran into massive economic problems there was a political legitimacy question which people were willing to overlook as willing as long as they were getting their uh, i guess their economic benefits and when they stopped they started asking well is this really legitimate and long story short uh guido actually used constitutional venezuelan powers to declare the sitting president illegitimate and declare himself interim president this is not a u.s factored thing this was very much a venezuela factor thing and and essentially what the united states is trying to do now is is uh i mean they are picking a side obviously sure some could characterize it as because there there is a level of intervention i mean we are doing something but kind of as you were saying before this outcome has already come to the point where it's it's really fraught on both sides and so the united states is at least in my opinion we're essentially trying to to just smooth a transition of power that we know is probably going to happen anyway and to prevent it from just collapsing into full-on civil war so I think the United States is being a little bit more cynical than you're pointing it out to be. I think they are just trying to uh, put diplomatic pressure on uh, Marudo so he finally gets out of office. And I think they're majoritively doing that because they want a friendly government in Venezuela. Well, I mean, but, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said about that, too. Yeah, but it's it's the thing that they're not they're not actively intervening. They're not. The most they're doing is sanctioning the government finances and the oil company because the gov- uh, the comp- oil company is part of the government. And just for all you non-economists, uh, economists, non- <laughs> non-economists out there, um, oil is a fungible good, which means that it is going to be uh, sold whether there's one country having sanctions on it or not. This is, we're not talking about a uh, Iran, you know, sanction deal going on here so the united states sanctioning venezuela wouldn't have any clout at all if other countries were willing to deal with them as well which china is but the eu isn't if you look at a map of the people who recognized guido instead of uh, marudo it's basically all of south america besides like three countries this is this isn't a u.s sponsored thing the u.s is kind of opportunistically taking advantage of it i mean you want to talk about intervention i mean what russia is trying to do is actually an intervention right I mean, they're it's, sending it's, in mercenaries it's it's a repeat of the quote little green men in ukraine where they just send these ununiformed you know thugs essentially to uh, to ruffle everything up and to rough up the right people and to try to either you know yeah. keep the the regime in power by any means necessary or to sort of spark some type of conflict where they know that the regime will come out on top. Right? It's, I, just, uh, Russia has already sent mercenaries on commercial flights to Venezuela. I mean, this is a thing that has happened in the past, what, two weeks, I want to say? When did, uh, when did yeah. we see that? I and, think it was about two weeks ago, at least. Yeah. It's, so they are already intervening in Venezuela. It's really hard to come, to get where most of these people across the uh, world trying to say that the United States is invading Venezuela or overthrowing 
the rightful elected president of Venezuela, which, by the way, he's not. He was elected in a coup, or not a coup, in a sham election. I mean, at least there's there's something to be said about, you know, at least people aren't, you know, beating the drums to go to war and to militarily militarily intervene in another country. <laughs> well, John um, Bolton disagrees with you. 5,000 well, men to Venezuela. <laughs> yeah, but at, at least the public, you know, writ large isn't saying, you know, roll in there with tanks, topple them just like Saddam, and sure. walk away. Sure. And it's, to be 100% honest, though, I mean, what's going to happen to Venezuela if... I'm not advocating it by any means, but as a question just to think about, what happens to Venezuela if Russia is, like in Syria, again, the only one willing to actively intervene in the conflict? Well, and you know that even if, you know, if Venezuela were to become essentially the next Syria, who does that benefit? I mean, that that benefits Russia. Because mm-hmm. think of it this way. I mean, then all, all of Venezuela's, if there is a true civil war, all of Venezuela's oil production is probably going to shut down, or at the very least, it's going to be drastically reduced. So that helps Russia, who's pretty much a, a primary exporter of petroleum. Um, but then who does that directly harm? If that directly harms the United States. If there is a failed state that close to us, a large failed state in the form of Venezuela, that's because what Syria now is essentially a failed state. Well, I guess it's starting to get some semblance of government back under under Assad. But if Venezuela were to be a true failed state, that would be just devastating to the United States. That would be really, really difficult. All right, you uh, want to be a huge problem it. for the United States and a refugee problem. Yeah. The exact oh, exactly same it. thing that happened with Syria where there's just massive refugees and it kicks up all of this immigration sentiment and and then we're left fighting amongst each other while Russia sits there and prevails. Yep, that's it's about that's long and short of it, which, by the way, is again another reason why renewable energy is a national security concern for anyone out there in the government listening who I know you're not listening. Invest in those renewable energy sources because... God, would they put Russia and all these other countries, which are primary exporters of petroleum, who use their petroleum for ill means, would put them under, you want to, Iran, put them under the bus. But that's just me over my little corner. That's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. We'd like to thank our guest, Stephen, for his insight and analysis, as well as the listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at OrientalistEXP. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.